Hello, friends. Thank you for joining us this evening. I'm your host, Zen Garcia. All right. There we go. Love it. Cool. So today we have got. Uh, it's gonna be. It's gonna be a treat. It's gonna be a lot of fun. We got uh, Zen Garcia. He's, uh, you know, quite the researcher. I think he's written like over thirty books. He's been broadcasting. I think since around two thousand eight. He and his family are just a, a bunch of amazing scholars and scribes and researchers. And so it's gonna be. It's gonna be fun to pick his brain and kind of hear all the cool stuff that he's been up to and and what he's bringing. I know he's got a new book coming out here pretty quick. It's called the. Um, Pre-Adamites, I believe it is, of the antediluvian world. Is that right, Zen? Yes, the pre-Adamites and the antediluvian world, yes. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one for sure. So, you know, we got uh, a lot of different questions that the uh, the fam has asked us to uh, to cover. And uh, it's just going to be, I think it's going to be one of those uh, really interesting and, and fun um, you know, conversations to kind of learn a lot of stuff. I mean, there's obviously things that uh, I'll have a different conclusion than you on, but uh, obviously you are much more into this stuff than probably anybody else out there. So it's going to be awesome to hear some of your thoughts. So I guess just to start off, Zen, just uh, kind of tell us, you know, who you are and, uh, you know, where you're from and how you kind of got into, uh, you know, the book of Enoch and, and all the, the scriptures and things like that. Mm, sure. Um, well, the first time I read the book of Enoch, I was 18 years old. Uh, back then, there was all the new age hype going on. There was um, this great alignment of all the planets on one side of the earth. I think it was called the harmonic convergence. And uh, my friends and I had skipped school and were hanging out in Atlanta at a little place, a uh, little five points. And there was this bookshop there called crystal blue and um there were a lot of these new age teachings and new age books that were found in there and the book of enoch was also amongst them and so i had always had a fascination for scripture so i bought it and read it and was blown away by it and it led me to interest in the whole story of genesis 6 and the sons of god taking wives of the daughters of men and creating a race of giants. And so it really kicked off a fascination for uh, the esoteric. Um, and also I was reading at that time a lot of the Zachariah Sitchin stories and uh, the Sumerian mythology of the Anunnaki and all of that. And, and so um, I've always had a keen interest in the mythology and biblical prophecy and then after 2001 with the World Trade Center and uh, those particular attacks and, and then seeing you know, that governments were sponsoring terror and creating the boogeyman as a pretext to start illegal wars against innocent people, um, I began to examine and look into the New World Order and the conspiratorial side of what we are contending with in the world. And it was thereafter doing my research that in 2006 blog talk radio came available as a platform and that many people at that time looking into some of these uh, strange esoteric concepts began their own shows and so i did that and uh, i was invited to come on to a lot of different individuals i know like my friend rob skiba he also began a show um, sometime around that time there on Blog Talk as a platform, and many people did. And uh, that began my broadcasting career, and it introduced me to a lot of individuals which were at that time examining these topics and also writing books. 
uh, about these particular issues. And so it was kind of the forefront of the movement on um, a lot of the esoteric alternative truth and people that um, used radio as a platform to reach and share the information they've discovered with others. And then afterwards, um, many not only inviting me to come on to their shows, they asked me to share my writings, my investigation, the research that I was doing. And so I began to compile the information into many books. And I was already a published author since the time of 22 years of age. I released my first book, Look Somewhere Different, in 1992. Uh, and then the one that I started getting into biblical and new world order and esoteric concepts was Lucifer, father of Cain. And so that's um, all about the serpent seed and how even in this day and age, the new world order elites are from this one particular bloodline and that they are contending against the children of Adam and that this particular enmity between these seed lines ties back to not only what occurred in the garden with Adam and Eve's fall from grace, but also to the separation of light and darkness and legion rebelling against the most high God and causing what is the war in heaven. And that led to the then destruction of the earth in Genesis chapter one, two, where the earth became without form and void. And the book that I'm writing now about the pre-Adamites and the antediluvian world is specific to all of that. And it covers how the fallen angels had been cast out on what the second book of Enoch describes in chapter 29 and 30 as being the second day. And so from the second to the sixth day, they were present in this world when we were not. And so a lot of what we see with regard to the megalithic structures and the cyclopean architecture worldwide was established by them and this is why you know the what science concludes as the timeline for humanity that we you know became cavemen cave dwellers whatever and then um beginning beginning to farm and to gather in tribes and to slowly start to create what is the structure of society all this is in fact false and the truth of it is that um, the fallen angels have brought down the mysteries of the heaven a long time ago and they had built the structures you know cities the pyramids and ziggurats and all of that uh, as a representation of what they had seen in heaven um, you know, the ziggurats and the pyramids, I believe, are a representation of New Jerusalem and that um, these things were done in very ancient times and that the, the Bible speaks about eras and ages uh, to the earth that predate what is the modern 6,000 years of the story of uh, Adam and Eve and modern humanity. And so... Um, you know, many different things in reading the ancient manuscripts and the ancient scriptures as they presented themselves to me. I wrote numerous books and then um, we started a publishing company in 2016 and 
have been also doing compilations of various ancient manuscripts on various themes, like, uh, for instance, the Great Commission Three, uh, the end time apocalypses. We put together a, a group of stories that are not, you know, many of them were not even found in print up until that time. And they talk about the end of days and prophecy and how to understand what is written in Revelation. Uh, then we also put together the collected works of Enoch together with other stories and other manuscripts that have only recently come to light and which are also not available in print. And other things like Yahushua Christ, the infancy, early childhood, and lost years. Uh, because the Bible only speaks about one story of the youth of Christ when he was 13 years old. And he had departed from uh, Joseph and Mary when they had went to Jerusalem for Passover. And then backtracking their steps, they found him in the temple and he was teaching schooling the elder rabbis and the people of knowledge and this you know comes out in greater clarity in the infancy narratives but um because you really don't hear about or know about or learn about uh the story of joseph and mary and and yahushua in the lost years uh, um these extra biblical text can really fill in the gaps and help people to better understand what may remain ambiguous within the canonical materials. Yeah. I mean, so many things that you've talked about right now. I mean, this is stuff you do not learn in Sunday school. It's just something no, you don't, you don't, yeah, you don't hear about it in church. Uh, a lot of, a lot of this stuff just sounds, you know, kind of like, like craziness because nobody's really heard about this stuff. And, you know, I picked up the book of Enoch and read it, I think two or three times. And I got to tell you, like, I, like I was saying before the, the show started, so much of it's just over my head. And so it's, it's going to be great to get, uh, you know, your thoughts on, on a lot of this stuff. I mean, if you don't mind me asking, um, you know, I know on your website, it shows you um, in a wheelchair. Can you, can you tell us, you know, what happened there? It looks like you were fence. It looks like you liked a fence, but it also, looks yeah, like you're in a wheelchair. Yeah. I was at one time after acquiring my disability where I became paralyzed in 1994 when we lost our brakes on a mountain road. I was actually out there in California where you are now living in Garberville and going to a massage school called the Hartwood Institute. And um, we, you know, like I said, we lost our brakes. We were going down to a Grateful Dead show and losing our brakes. We went off a cliff and dropped 85 feet and I broke my neck at that time and uh, became a quadriplegic. And so I've been in a wheelchair since, but after moving back here to Atlanta, where my parents were living, uh, Shepherd Spinal Center, which is world renowned for treating not only spinal cord injury, but also uh, traumatic brain injuries. They have a number of sporting teams. And so I got involved with fencing um, because I had previously uh, was a, a student and also a teacher of martial arts. And I was involved in uh, the study of many different styles and the incorporation of all of them into what even uh, Bruce Lee called the, you know, the way of the wandering fist, the Jeet Kune Do, which was an amalgamation of all styles. Uh, you basically take your opponent and out of what they are used to uh, for like, you know, most Western fighters that are brought up on boxing, you take them to the ground, you choke them out. So you just, you know, 
uh, adapt and that you uh, learn all styles so that understanding the weakness of your opponent, you use that against them to defeat them. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, you get uh, quite quite the journey, and we definitely appreciate uh, you know all the stuff that you that you bring to the world, and uh, it's incredible that uh, even even through um, you know through the accident and, and through the uh, your situation, you're able to still still do so so much. So yeah, yeah I appreciate that as well. Well, you yeah. got to do what you can with what you got, you know. I, I hear you. That, that's for sure. So um, obviously, I could ask you one question. And we, you could elaborate for hours on it, right? So, right, right. Yeah. in the in the in the sake of trying to get through a whole bunch of different things for people, maybe we can kind of talk and, you know, like in, in bullet points almost. So that way, mm-hmm. people get we can cover a whole bunch of different topics and and kind of go uh, kind of go from there a little bit. So, yeah, know, certainly, could, that'd, be, that'd be awesome. So with um, like the Book of Enoch, for people, some people understand it, um, other people, you know, maybe they don't. Can you just kind of like tell us in a nutshell what the book of Enoch is and why it isn't in the Bible other than maybe like the Ethiopian Bibles and things like that? Why isn't it in, mm-hmm. in the main, the mainstream canons that we're, that we're used to seeing when we go to church? It's my opinion that the council of Nicaea and the other uh, groups where they came together to decide on what to authorize and approve to be in a canon um, that these groups were not there to really share or to uh, bring forth truth to the masses that historically it has always been about hiding truth and um, in keeping it, hoarding it for, you know, specific like secret society type groups. And so that's in my opinion, why the canonical materials mostly excludes everything and anything specific to, uh, especially the story of the fallen angels, the Genesis 6 uh, and Genesis 3, the enmity between the seed lines. These particular themes are so important for understanding and are skeleton keys for unlocking so much of what remains cryptic within the Bible. Um, again, I think that those processes uh, and a lot of those that were uh, the authority behind that process they were trying to hide truth rather than share it. And so, um, yeah. So, you know, is, is that because as, they didn't want us to know certain things like, uh, Oh yeah, you, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's like with the bloodlines and the war between the bloodlines, who our enemy is, you know, whenever like um, militarily and strategically, whenever you are going to war, uh, it's important to understand the tactics and to understand who your enemy truly is. Uh, otherwise, you don't know um, who to pinpoint, who to target, and who to take defensive measures against. And so the, you know, the children of Cain, the seed of the serpent, they have done a very good job of working from the shadows and in guiding the fate of humanity ever since, you know, the separation, the war in heaven, and the, uh, the, the birth of Cain and Abel into this world. Uh, and they are still working behind the scenes from the shadows as the, you know, learned elders of Zion, the New World Order elites, uh, the different secret societies, the Brotherhood of the Serpent, all these different organizations that um, have, you know, been organizing the elite for what is the agenda of the New World Order. Let's um, take a step back then. So you're saying that um, Cain didn't actually come from Adam? Where did he where did he come from and, and where did um, 
where do we where do we read more about this? Yeah, be, uh, well, it's in that, Genesis chapter three okay. that you know what is described as Eve eating fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and how that is portrayed as being an apple. That what that metaphorically is symbolizing is that the serpent beguiling Eve. That word beguile means wholly seduced, and that the punishments that resulted from her and Adam eating this so-called fruit or this apple is that in Genesis 3.15, we see that God turns to the serpent and says that he's going to put enmity between her seed and the serpent seed. And this is exactly what began the war between these two bloodlines. And Abel was the first casualty of this war because his half-brother Cain murdered him. And then afterwards, we see that um, Seth, whose name means replacement, substitution, and compensation, he was brought forth to bear the bloodline and the seed line of Adam thereafter. And so, yeah, it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, that Cain is of the wicked one. And in Matthew chapter 13, Christ tells us that the tares are the children of the enemy. The enemy is the devil. Uh, and so, you know, this theme, again, is another one of those that was commonplace in ancient times during the establishment of the early church. And even the Aramaic Targum, which is Targum means translation, it's the first translation of the Hebrew Torah into a different language. It dates back, it's 2,000 years older than the King James. And reading and studying the English translation of these Aramaic scriptures, which we do have access to now, it becomes clear that it, it says uh, in Genesis 4.1, uh, Adam, who um, knew his wife Eve, and there's a portion of the text that says, who had desired the angel, and that it was her desiring this angel that led to the conception of Cain. And that's why we see in Genesis chapter 4, Cain's lineage and the first 10 generations of them are separate from Adam's children and his bloodline in Genesis chapter five. And so, All yeah, it's kind of a hidden in plain sight. If you interpret it. I exactly. Guess, yeah. yeah. It, it has it, been it, hidden in plain sight. This is definitely something you don't hear about in Sunday school. Right. So, so no, that's the bloodline not. we're talking about is, so, you know, the, the bloodline of Adam and then the bloodline of Cain, right. saying that all these, these bad people, they come from this Cain bloodline. Yeah. The other people, they come from, from Abel. No, Abel was murdered. They come I'm from sorry, Seth. Adam. Yeah. I'm sorry, Adam. Yeah. Seth. Yeah. Yeah. Seth, whose name again means substitution, compensation, and replacement. And we see the verification of this in Christ. He speaks about uh, in Matthew and Luke, he says that the Pharisees, he calls them uh, that they are of their father, the devil, and that historically their fathers have been the murderers of the prophets. And then he says from Abel, to Zacharias. And Zacharias was John the Baptist, his father. He was the high priest that was killed in the Holy of Holies by Herod uh, when they were searching for John the Baptist. And Abel, we know, was killed by Cain. So he is telling us in association that the assassins of the prophets all the way back to the garden have been the children of Cain, and that the Pharisees are also the children, that's why he calls them a brood of vipers, um, because they are linked to 
and you know this is strange as well but um cain was said to have a seraphic appearance which is a reptilian nature and so we see that in the scriptures there is preserved a theme that this particular bloodline has a, a reptilian characteristic associated to it which so i know the, is you know very esoteric but it's true yeah that sounds that sounds uh you know like out of a movie or something like that so you, oh, yeah I, i've heard about you know people in the past talking about reptilians and stuff like that up there in the the south pole or in antarctica or someplace like that or that so are these people these things you know still around and what um you know who do they represent i guess in in today's world that we would we would recognize and know their names uh they are indeed still around and we see that um christine fitzgerald who was a good friend of princess diana she shares in her witness that um princess diana spoke about how even the royal bloodlines there in the uk that they have a capacity to shapeshift and that they are also um you know connected to these reptilian bloodlines uh, arizona wilder also speaks about this david ike as well and so and this is also biblical the concepts of and i know this sounds all crazy but even looking at the oral traditions uh preserved worldwide you see that it is talked about how the anunnaki which they're depicted as uh, having and holding form as a feathered serpent, that the bloodlines that rule over many of the different empires and ancient kingdoms worldwide are attributed as having been seated and established by the dragons or dragon-like entities. Uh, this particular theme is especially a predominant in um, Oriental societies and like Chinese and um, you know, the very ancient Far Eastern uh, traditions. And so you see in all the stories of the world, even um, in the um, the testimony of a, a Sangoma, a African medicine man named Credo Mutwa, that he brings up this same particular theme and he calls these people the Chitta Uri. And so all of this information is found in great detail in my books and uh, you know, I know, again, that it sounds strange and bizarre, but when you look at the ancient mythologies, the oral traditions and the legends um, preserve worldwide, this is the, the background, the underlying truth which comes forth. Wow. So in the, in the actual book of Enoch, if you had to sum it up kind of like in a nutshell for people that you know, haven't read it or whatnot, what exactly does it tell us? What can we, what can we learn from it? Is it... Um, you know, initially when I first read it, it seemed like uh, it kind of explains everything, right? It kind of explains how the world works, explains, you know, why things, you know, um, are the way they are. But again, it was, you know, way over my head. And again, it's not something taught in Sunday school or at church or school. So if you can just kind of like sum up, you know, what that is so we can kind of start, you know, touching on different subjects throughout it, that'd be awesome. Yeah, sure. Um, in the ancient traditions, it is said that when Adam was cast forth, from paradise, he was given five books called the books of creation. One is the book of astrology, the book of signs, the book of the wars of the Lord, the book of the generations of man, and the book of the law. And looking at the book of Enoch, it was said that Enoch was taught from these books. And so really what we see in the book of Enoch is an amalgamation of these five books and the different portions 
speak about and share as testament the story of the rebellion of the Watchers during the time of Yared, Enoch's father, whose name means descent. And his name is preserving the fact that the Watcher Angels 200 said to be in the book of Enoch that carrying the mysteries of heaven, they descended down to the heavens and took wives of all which they chose. And it was this group of angels that created the giants and also that established the pagan religions which worshiped the fallen angels as their fathers. And they did in, in this particular worship, they established victim, blood, and child, sacrificed the consumption of blood and cannibalism as part of their religious activities. And so that's why we see all throughout the scriptures that, you know, the ancient pagan cultures and the empires that were ruled over by the giants, that they had such behavior and activity. Uh, but other portions of the book of Enoch, like Rob and I have been doing a chapter by chapter, verse by verse study of the book of Enoch for now 25 uh, weeks and or 25 shows and um, which, you know, does equate to weeks because we do one a week. But anyways, um, in the second portion of the book of Enoch, uh, the chapters 46 onward, you see that it is a description of what is the harvest at the end of days and the separation of the wheat and the tares and also prophetically speaks about the coming, the second advent, the return of Christ as judge and that he would at that time being the elect one and the son of man that he would end the whole duality and theme of good and evil uh, pain and pleasure you know light and darkness uh, all that would be ended with the return of the son of man uh, but then you have in chapters 71 through 84 what is called the book on the courses of the heavenly luminaries. And this is a description of the heavenly clockwork system. And Enoch describes in great detail the motions of the luminaries. The first portion is the greater luminary, which is the sun. Uh, then he talks about the lesser luminary. Then he talks about the cycles of the planets. And then finally the constellations and what is the Maserat or the 12 houses of the zodiac and thereafter he goes into what is called the dream vision uh, this is chapters 84 and onwards and it gives us an account of the generations of humanity and also the story of how the angels rebelling against the most high that they were the ones that established the seed of cain and also the hybrid races that came forth from the children of Cain, which are described in this particular story. They, it's like an animal farm uh, parable, but he calls them uh, donkeys, elephants, and asses. And they represent the various hybrid uh, beings that came forth as a process of what the Book of Giants in the Dead Sea Scrolls calls the miscegenation of not only humanity, but also the animal and plant and you know worlds um that they destroyed genetically everything and that they brought forth many hybrid type of creatures which because they were hybrid 
they couldn't replicate uh, kind after kind and they disappeared after their one lifetime. But there were during that time, what we see in the, uh, the ancient accounts and the mythologies, again, the stories of the men of renown and the stories of creatures like Medusa, um, you know, the ancient heroes, Hercules, uh, centaurs, you know, things of that nature. So basically these are, I guess, watchers or fallen angels that have, um, I guess, bred with, with humans and they've made, they end up creating these giants and things like that. And so the men of renown or, or the people we hear about in like Greek mythology, that's, that's who you're saying these people are. Kind of like yeah. They are the society. children of the fallen angels and with the daughters of Cain. Yes, that's correct. And so from days two to six, when the creation of, of earth, they basically were here before before man and they just were kind of building all the structures that we see that are still there today like Michu Picchu and like the temples and the pyramids and, and stuff like that yes a lot of that was created by what are referenced as the titans of old and that there was before uh, even what we see in Genesis 1-2, where the earth is being reestablished and re-inhabited with all the, the creatures, um, because everything had been utterly annihilated leading up to the verse in Genesis 1-2. The Hebrew for that is um, haya tohu wabohu, which means that the earth, the primeval primordial earth, became a deserted wasteland and an indistinguishable ruin. And so looking at those words, uh, deserted wasteland and indistinguishable ruin, it implies that something occurred that led to the earth taking on such form. And this was the war in heaven and the rebellion of the angels. And yeah, so being cast out, they were present here on the earth even before the creation of the pre-Adamites in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and of modern humanity in Genesis 2, 4 through 2, 7. And so there, you know, this represents a time, I believe, when the pre-Adamites, even before the pre-Adamites, that there were very huge, you know, could be, you know, several hundred feet tall beings uh, you know, called the Titans, and that this also represents an age when the trees were of very large size as well, and that what we see as um, mountains like the Devil Towers could have represented what are the bases of these very large trees from those very ancient times. And we see that in the landscape of that particular ancient world, uh, has been fossilized and petrified, um, you know, into the landscape, what seems to be the carcasses and the, you know, the ancient bodies of not only these giants, but these ancient uh, creatures that were at and alive at that time. Uh, it also describes how even the, um, you know, the dragonflies that in this age, they had a six foot wingspan. And so, you know, the very, a whole different cycle of life and um, the stature and the size of the beings and creatures that were part of this ancient age is beyond imagination for us. Uh, that even in the Bible with the creation of modern humanity, you see that the first generations of mankind lived almost a thousand years. 
and they had very long lifespans. And I do believe that they had uh, greater statures than what we see uh, in our used to um, thinking about in this day and age. So back then, like Methuselah, for instance, you know, lived to be like a thousand years old, right? So in 969 years, I believe. Yep. And so uh, back then, were those people large as well? Our first, our first run of Adamites, were they large people as well? Or were they just, you know, average size like we are today? No, I do believe they were uh, of much larger stature in that uh, in the Gospel of Bartholomew, it attributes Adam as being 90 foot tall. I don't believe at all that all of the other, um, you know, children that were born of, of Adam were of that large size. But I do believe that they were of larger size than we are in this day and age. And that even the lifespans of the giants in the Book of Enoch were said to be reduced to 500 years. Now, so like take, for instance, um, you know, like Noah. So when Noah created the ark, was he, you know, larger than normal as well? Because a lot of people say that, you know, he couldn't have done that. I know it took 40 years to build the ark, but was he also large? And that would explain why he and his family were able to build something so, so large. Yeah, he was of larger stature and that uh, in Turkey, there was a time when the, grave of Noah's wife was said to have been located there. And there was, um, at some point, somebody had dug up and the bones indicated that even she was of like between 14 and 18 feet tall. And this story is um, preserved by Jonathan Gray, who was an archaeologist and has written a lot of material um, that confirms the investigations and the studies of Ron Wyatt as he went around the world and was led by God to a lot of archaeological studies which confirm the veracity of those things that are written in the Bible. So we just kind of kept shrinking until a certain point and then I know if you go back a couple hundred years we were small you know like the average height was like five four five six something like that especially in England and then now you know we're up I think uh, at five eight five ten is the average height you know here in the U.S. so we're what, what kind of happened there as far as, you know, the shrinking and then now maybe going back up in height a little bit? Well, even in ancient times, in my opinion, there were, uh, you know, both larger and shorter people that it describes a, a group called the Dionysian people that were like little people, like dwarves and hobbits. And so in my opinion, that all throughout the histories of humanity, there have been a wide variety of hominids and that certainly the overall stature has been reducing and shrinking over time. But, um, you know, here now, uh, I do believe that in the Solomon Island Mysteries, it also speaks about how there are giants alive and present in the world in this day and age. And so the diversity of life and the scale of hominids was found in wide uh, varying shapes and sizes. And so we have through all histories, even now, you know, there are pygmy type people in the world and there are people that are of larger stature. So, Sure. I know that the Smithsonian, they were recording and logging all of these basically bones and skeletons of, of things that they considered giants. I don't know if you saw that or not, but 
you know, a lot of a lot of the uh, the recordings and, and uh, stuff that they had, it was talking about some of the heads being like two to three feet round. You know what I mean? And like the mm-hmm. bones, like fourteen, like the the height of the person being like fourteen feet, just adding you know more credibility to what you're saying because that was the Smithsonian that documented all that type of stuff, and they were unearthing that across the U.S. and across different different other continents and things like that. Um, yeah, so yeah, I, I mean, there's there's been stuff dug up and they've they've yeah about it there sure. have. Uh, and I actually think that the Smithsonian is part of the cover-up and that what we do have of their remaining records are just a very small remnant of them being forced to recognize that this was, yes, part of the uh, history of, you know, the primordial times here on the earth. That even Abraham Lincoln in giving a speech, and I think it was like, 1864 or something of that nature there at Niagara Falls he mentions how it's well known and common knowledge that there was an ancient race of giants that lived here in the Americas uh, and that the bones and that you know the large statures of them were being discovered all over America that there were a huge amount of mound structures all over the world that when dug into unearthed you know, the and confirmed without a doubt the veracity of the Bible in speaking about these giants. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he was kind of a giant in his own right, too. He was a very, right. very tall guy. So knowing, um, you know, from what you've, you've stated, um, as far as, you know, I guess the flood, right? So if you have the watchers that started breeding with, with humans, creating all these different I don't know. I mean, I guess you could call them some of them, you know, titans, men of renown. You get some of them you could just call, you know, freaks or mutants or whatever because they're just ginormous, right? Now, in the Bible, it says that you know God created a flood, you know, to wipe out basically, you know, sin and all these this craziness that was happening on Earth. A lot of people think that that was because man was corrupt. Is it because man was corrupt, or was it because the the Watchers, these fallen angels, mixed with with humans and created all this this craziness, and that's what he was trying to uh, destroy? Yeah, that's a very uh, important point as well and it was not just because even though yes humanity had fallen away and taken on the ways of Cain and had been corrupt and by the time of Noah there were eight that you know weren't um, evil so to speak but it was Noah who was only pure in his generations meaning that he did not have the corruption of the Nephilim seed in his bloodline and in his lineage and there are many books that are specific to for instance uh, the second baruch there's an account of the flood and how it wiped out 409,000 giants and so it the flood was specifically to target the generations of the children of the nephilim which the nephilim are the fallen angels um, a lot of people associate the nephilim with being the giants but I don't. I only um, believe the Nephilim are the fallen angels. And then all those that were born unto them, even these hybrid beings, uh, they were, many of them, cannibals and eating the blood and consuming the flesh of humanity. And this was one of the reasons why, specifically, that yes, God brought a flood upon the world. And not only that, in the book of Enoch, it tells us that the angels were tasked with setting the giant tribes against each other and that there was a a punishment that was given to the watchers that they would be forced to watch the destruction of their children. And this again is a very important reason 
why people should become familiar with the book of Enoch, uh, because the sentence of that was against them and not um, more so specific to us. So pre-flood, I mean, when when the uh, the fallen angels came to Earth, they obviously knew uh, advanced science and technology and, and taught the human race a lot. Um, what do you think that they had back then? Do you think that there was like the pyramids? What do you think the point of that was? What do you think the point of Atlantis was? What kind of flying saucers and crafts and things like that do you think that they had back in the day that some people were starting to realize may have existed back then? I think that the fallen angels had high technology and capacity to perform and to construct things that we can't replicate even in this day and age. And that, you know, we don't even know uh, the types of technologies and capacities that they had. But according to the mythologies, they were involved in uh, sort of Stargate-like technology where they were opening and conjuring and invitings into this realm, uh, devils and demons. And that was part of the reason why judgment was brought upon them, uh, even in the Atlantean age and with the destruction of the old world. Um, as I cover in this particular book and some of the other books that I've written, there's a scroll of Thothis and the Emerald Tablets of Thoth, which speak about these Atlantean people. Uh, these Atlantean priest kings and the kind of evil and abomination that they were involved in. And it also talks about how being uh, serpent headed or reptilian in nature that they possessed and took over the councils of humanity. And in that way became, uh, were able to dictate the fate and destiny of humanity uh, according to their whims and their desires. And so, um, I think that even scripturally, Christ speaks about these beings as, you know, the archons, the powers, the principalities, the rulers of darkness, wickedness in high places. And that unless you understand this aspect of what we have been contending with all throughout uh, history, even going back to very ancient times, you just can't make sense of what is the true spiritual war against humanity that even Daniel speaks about them attempting to intermingle themselves amongst the seed of men and that there is this uh, spiritual force called legion which is in this day and age dictating and leaving even the councils of humanity the new world order and the kings of the earth that through the united nations uh, bow down and take blood oath to worship them um, this is the reality of what we are contending with. Wow. So to, to backtrack a little bit when you're talking about uh, portals, what do you think the, the pyramids, you know, what do you think the main purpose of, of them, you know, what do you think they are? Um, well, some say that they were for initiation and for uh, conjuring and interacting with the devils and the demons, uh, which I do believe that uh, some aspect of that may be true, but, you know, there's others that talk about that the pyramid was a source of power and that it was able to generate uh, power and etheric or, um, you know, electromagnetic, whatever, whatever it may be. Uh, certainly, even in the Tartarian Empire and the construction of those particular cities, we see that there was um, 
things connected to free energy and free energy devices that we don't understand and that this kind of technology has been suppressed, but certainly in ancient times and as established by the fallen ones themselves, there was high technology which involved the use of crystals and stones and things of that nature uh, to, you know, to magnify, which we know that even crystals, they're used in our TVs and radios to transmit uh, and to receive. You know, and, and, and so um, that is without a doubt capacity yeah. that they were able to use and exploit and that we don't understand. Yeah, it's, you know, the, um, when you start talking about, you know, like crystals and things like that, are, are you familiar with a guy named uh, Dr. Greer? I think he uh, did a couple videos, um, Unacknowledged, and then the other one is Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind. He talks about these, you know, these, these gems or these rocks or whatnot that are used to basically power these, these spacecraft. Have are you heard? talking about Stephen Greer? Yeah. yeah Dr. Uh, Stephen I'm, Greer. I'm not familiar with his work, but I know who he is as being in connection with the Disclosure Project. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what that is, but uh, I just, I'd seen a couple of those videos and it was, it was interesting that they were talking about basically these, these stones, like what you're speaking about now was actually used to, um, you know, power these crafts and even people that think UFOs are, are crazy. Uh, I mean, you saw CNN, right? In the midst of all this coronavirus stuff, they were, you know, showing, you know, like, I don't know, 10 year old footage of, of you know, UFOs, uh, CNN did, MSNBC, all the, all the, uh, all the regular channels that uh, we try not to watch. You know, for the same reason, we don't drink out of a toilet bowl, right? Yeah, uh, right. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but they, uh, yeah, they were showing you know footage of all these these crazy uh, UFOs. So I thought it was interesting you're talking about the stones and, and the rocks that power things because I know in Egypt, I think like in the past ten years or something like that, when they were um, resurfacing or doing some type of um, um, I, I don't know, rehabilitating some of the structures and things there. Some of the plaster, you know, fell off and it showed, you know, this stuff from, God, I don't know, thousands of years ago that was kind of, uh, I guess, um, you know, carved into these structures and it, you know, it looked like airplanes and helicopters and submarines, right. things yeah. like that. So just wonder, you know, how, how long this stuff has been around and it sounds like it's been around from the very beginning, right? So right. we're just- Yeah, you know, and I think that this is one of the reasons why uh, Christ alludes to in the chapters where the apostles ask him what would be the signs of his return and of the end of the age. Uh, he says, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the second coming of the Son of Man. And he was alluding to the high technology of the fallen watchers and the capacity that they had, that they were involved in even the genetic experimentation and the creation of hybrid life forms that they could possess and utilize for uh, their entrance into this world. And we see that, you know, in Ecclesiastes, as Solomon also referenced is that there's nothing new under the sun, that right. the things that have been are the things that will be, will yeah. be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So with, with Enoch, he's one of, one of two people, I guess, that didn't die. You know, he left earth to be with God. He was spending so much time with them. Right. Um, did he actually end up becoming um, an, an angel himself when, when he left here? I think it was like, it's something called like Metatron or, or something like that. Yeah, is that, 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 that is a, the story according to some aspects of the biblical narrative that uh, he was transformed into the angel Metatron and that he was assigned the task of writing uh, and preserving 
the actions and behaviors of all people into what are the books of remembrance or the books of life, and that these would be opened at the end of days to determine who would be numbered amongst the elect and who uh, with the children of perdition. And so, yeah, that is the story. And specifically in the third book of Enoch, uh, the Hebrew book of Enoch, you find this story preserved and that transformation revealed. But um, it is my opinion that at the end of days that Enoch and Elijah will be tasked with coming forth as the two witnesses of Revelation 11 to convict the Antichrist and to affirm to the world that this is a imposter, a false messiah, and that in doing so, there is on record that they will be killed in the streets of Jerusalem and their bodies lay there for three and a half days, and then they will be resurrected. And, um, you know, that will be part of what is the signs of the great tribulation, which are the last three and a half years uh, of the rule of the Antichrist here in this world. Wow. You know, we, we talked about it a little bit in the beginning, but, um, you know, as far as the Bible, you know, how much of it do you think has been, I'm sure you get this question a lot, but how much of it do you think has been taken out or, or even changed? Because um, I know in Revelations, it talks about, you know, don't take anything out of the Bible. Otherwise, you know, God's going to take it away from you, right? So change or alter. How much of the Bible do you think has been changed or altered or things withdrawn just from like what you're talking about earlier, just for them to, uh, I guess, keep us in the dark, so to speak, on certain things? Well, that particular passage in the book of Revelation is specific to the book of Revelation itself. There was no Bible in the early days of the church. There was no uh, approved and authorized collection of manuscripts, which you know people now allude to as the Bible. And during that time, people read and studied from everything. And, but with regard to the Bible, uh, I know without a doubt that at least the names of God, um, the Father and the Son, have been removed, and that the stories of the stories of Mary and the early youth and infancy, all of that has been removed from what should be the gospel narrative, um, and that's why we only have one story of the early life and childhood of Christ. Um, but there literally are thousands of manuscripts that are missing from what would be the entirety of the biblical narrative. And that there's probably thousands, multiple thousands of others that have been eradicated, completely disappeared and prevented from, you know, the public having them and considering them in their study of prophecy and uh, in their eagerness to understand the gospel. And I think that the Vatican Library holds many texts, uh, which we don't have access to. And they are slowly releasing some of these manuscripts, even the lost book of King Og of Bashan and the story of the 100,000 war, uh, giant war. Uh, that's a very fascinating text and a portion of what is the narrative of the story of the giants and their war against Israel that is left out and little understood and known about. And these things are again, preserved in the book of Enoch. Uh, even their you know, attempts to eradicate the book of Enoch were successful until um, James Bruce, if that's his name, um, went down and 
found in the Ethiopic canon um, mention and was able to gain access to three scrolls of the ancient book of Enoch and then uh, brought that to light in the 17th, 18th century uh, for reconsideration by the public. But until that time, though, all, you know, all the books of Enoch had been eradicated from public knowledge. And so these stories that we're speaking about now were completely disappeared. And so there's a lot of information uh, in the work that we do, sacredwordpublishing.com. People can go there and find and gain access to many, many, uh, probably hundreds of texts um, that are not available in print anywhere else and things that have been lost. Um, and I do believe that in the work that we do, we are part of the spirit of God being poured out on uh, the people of the last times, the last generation, the fig tree generation. And that even the book of Enoch in chapter one speaks about having been written for a remote and distant generation. And so I think that a lot of material is coming to light and certainly the internet and the easy access that people have of not only digitizing the ancient teachings uh, and making them available worldwide, that this is part of the process of God revealing, unveiling, and unearthing what were teachings that had been lost, forgotten, and forbidden. What are some of the books that you think people should definitely read that uh, it could be scripture or it could be just your books where you actually, you know, go through and, and kind of, you know, line things out for people. What is some stuff that they need to read in, in addition to the book of Enoch and in addition to just the regular Bible? Well, I think that there are three things that are very important for understanding uh, a lot of what is veiled within scripture. And that is the, the seed of the war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And I have a, Great Contest series, book one, The War in Heaven, book two, The Enmity Between the Seed Lines, that will help people to understand the overall, the larger picture of what we are contending with and how it is even revealed that, you know, the presidents, all the presidents of America are blood related to one another. Um, and so I think that's a very important theme. The other is pre-existence and how election determines the circumstances of our birth and that God knew us even before the foundations of the world. That as it is said to Jeremiah, I knew you before you entered into the womb of your mother, I had foreordained you to be a prophet unto the nation. That this theme applies to all of us and that the war in heaven was critical in determining who would be born of what particular bloodline in this lifetime incarnation. And so that is another very important theme. And then the other I think is biblical cosmology and how um, the concept of the Darwinian Copernican heliocentric model of the world and that basis is tied to what will be the upcoming strong delusion of the extraterrestrials being the creators of humanity and that many people are ready now even to bow down to these extraterrestrial gods and they are nothing more than the fallen angels which were 
cast out and banished long ago. And so, um, and then the other, you know, so many other books, but like I said, the, the understanding of who Christ was, the stories of Mary and his early infancy, infancy, childhood, those lost years, and how he was God incarnate from the moment of his immaculate conception, and that it wasn't after the Holy Spirit came upon him during his baptism that he received divine providence, but that he had, uh, that Mary was able to even heal uh, people that had leprosy and that were possessed by devils and demons with his bathwater and his swaddling clothes. And that even when he went into Egypt, all the idols bowed to him when he was a two-year-old child. And so these kind of stories affirm that, and prophetically, he, he explains, you know, all throughout his life, things that would happen to him later. And, and so I think that is also um, knowledge that people should try to glean. The, the collected works of Enoch, which, you know, the story of the fallen angels and the interdiction of the watchers into the affairs of humanity. These um, topics are very important as well. And that it was specifically because of Genesis 3 um, and that Cain was of the wicked one that the possibility of Genesis 6 and the interdiction of the watchers with the daughters of Cain was even possible. And that it is this particular bloodline which we are at war against and even now with the bloodline of the elite being connected to them um, and then there's like i said the great commission three the end time apocalypses that in my opinion is the most important area of study for people that are, are alive right now because prophecy shows to you that the ancient manuscripts were inspired by the presence of the most high god and that only in understanding that truly there is a God, a creator, that we were made in his image, that you can understand that he has revealed through his word and through his prophets the end from the beginning. Um, and so, you know, those are just some of the things, but there's oh so God. much, you know, that we've published and released. I'll speak of one other, and that has to do with the Great Commission that in the Great Commission, books one and two, which we have also released, there's many stories and accounts of the apostles going forth two by two to different parts of the world. And there's a story in that account, uh, which is specific to Andrew and Matthias uh, being sent to what's called the city of the man-eaters. And the city of the man-eaters gives the story of how uh, Satan one of the strongholds of Satan, uh, that these people were abducting people and that they were gouging their eyes out and they were fattening up like cattle and that every once in a while they would have a festival where they would bring forth seven of these victims. They would slaughter them, divide up their bodies and in a orgy of blood, they would cannibalize and then also drink blood in ritual, um, you know, victim and child sacrifice, uh, the ritual abuse of these people to celebrate and to worship their pagan gods, these fallen angel deities. And that they also uh, had living amongst them 
what was an ancient serpent, a basilisk, uh, much like in the story of Bell and the dragon that there was in these very ancient times, or like Conan and the barbarian. There was um, living in those times, very ancient serpents or what are called dragons, and that they were revered as symbols of Satan and the fallen angels by the pagan peoples um, that, you know, again, were performing and uh, indulging in such abomination. Yeah, it's, it's some pretty awful stuff there. You know, it's, uh, it is. Yeah, Bell and the Dragon, I know that was removed from the canon. I think uh, Jubilee right. was removed from the canon. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of that stuff, you know, I, I've read I've read those before, but um, yeah, no, I didn't uh, didn't know that. That's, that's pretty out there. Um, all the yeah. stuff that you mentioned for the past, you know, 10 minutes or so, so many different questions that were coming up. In my in my little brain, right? So, you know, one of the one of the first things I wanted to ask you, you were talking about how the Vatican has access or has a bunch of these scriptures and things like that there that they've been releasing a little bit to us here and there. But there's other people out there that say that um, you know, the Vatican is they worship something called like a, a fish god. You know, that's why the, the Pope yeah, has Doga. Right. Yep, Daga. So that way that that hat that he wears, these Catholics, the hats that they wear looks like a fish. Is there mm, any the truth to that? Is there any truth to that? Yeah, absolutely. And I actually speak about this. And when you look at it, the Pope's hat, which is called a mitre, is connected to the reverence of what is in the Bible spoken of as the fish god, Dogon, and that this was the god of the Philistines and the god which Goliath and his brothers revered. And so it shows that there is a connection even in this day and age through the Catholic Church where they are principally worshiping covertly this particular God. And we see in the story of um, Barossus, he speaks about how in the ancient times, this particular deity, this hybrid being, uh, which is another form of what is called the phoenix or the feathered serpent, uh, the Nakash in Genesis chapter 3, that this particular being had come to the ancient peoples and taught them uh, language, numbers, mathematics, and gave them uh, high technology, which elevated uh, and evolved their cultures and civilizations very quickly. But what is not spoken about, and even in the reverence of the feathered serpent worldwide, that in the Mayan and the Aztec and you know, a lot of cultures worldwide, they speak about the reverence of this feathered serpent, the Viracocha, Kukulkan, uh, Quetzalcoatl, things of that nature, that this same deity or this group of these hybrid beings that they came down from the heavens or came out of the seas in order to give information and knowledge to the people. But in doing so, they also established religions where child victim and blood sacrifice were part of the construct of their worship. And so that's the thing that sets apart the pagan peoples uh, worldwide from what is the, uh, the worship and the devotion of the Most High God and the Israel and the children of promise, um, because God hates that kind of behavior and those kind of things, which were, again, commonplace amongst the pagan peoples in their worship of the fallen angel deities. Crazy. Is uh, the Doggin guy still alive? Uh, I do believe that he is part of Legion. 
and that Satan, the adversary, Lucifer, the fallen cherub, uh, that the, all of these entities are the same beings. And yeah, they're going to be uh, until the end of what will be the millennial reign, where they are wiped out as if that they had never been in what's called biblically the second death. Then death, evil, and legion, and all those that follow them, even the New World Order elites, they will be eradicated uh, and destroyed and, and wiped out from existence. Well, where do you think, uh, where in the world do you think they're at? You hear stories about North Pole, South Pole, stuff like that. Um, what, uh, what's, what's your thoughts on it? Uh, in my opinion, the North Pole is the gateway, what Jacob calls the ladder of the angels, and that there is a opening that leads to what is the throne room of the Most High God there where Polaris is. And there, there is no South Pole. The South Pole is the outer rim of the circle of the earth. But that in the North Pole, there is also called what uh, is referred to as Rupus Negra. And it means the black rock and that there's this ancient mountain there that is taller than any of the other mountains of the world. It's called the Mount of the Congregation in the scriptures. Uh, in Lucifer speaks about it as being in the sides of the north. Um, but it's also called Mount Olympus, Mount Meru, Mount Zion. And this is where the demigods live. Uh, and specifically as far as the fallen angels and legion, Dogon or Satan, Lucifer or Samael, uh, Azazel, they live in the interior of the earth that there is a hollow earth entrance, a whirlpool which surrounds this uh, ancient mountain there at the North Pole that descends down into the interior of the earth. And this particular hole is said to um, swallow all of the world's oceans every six hours and then reversing course, it expels them um, and in geyser. And that this cycle is what creates the high and low tide uh, on the earth, uh, because the earth, again, is a plane, and all of the world's oceans create what is the sea level. And so the swallowing and the expelling of the waters of the oceans in such manner in this rhythm is what creates the high and the low tide. So you believe that the earth is a flat plane? You don't believe that it's round like a globe? No, not at all. There's no curvature. And anybody can go and determine this for themselves simply by uh, checking with a laser pointer over, you know, extension of two or three miles, that curvature is non-existent, that there's absolutely not one inch of curvature, even though it's supposed to be eight inches inversely squared over, you know, whatever amount of miles. Um, but, you know, again, I've determined it myself and anybody in the world can through very easy experimentation confirm that there's no coverage of the earth and also that there's no motion to the earth, that we're told that the earth is moving 1,037 miles an hour, which is faster than the speed of sound or a bullet shot from the gun. And yet I can go outside of my house on any given day, look up and my flag's not even wavering. Uh, and so all those motions and the speed uh, and also the, you know, supposed curvature of the earth, those things can be confirmed as non-existent. So when I look to the sky and I look at 
you know, I don't know, the moon, you know, Jupiter, Venus, you know, you, you see that they're round. So mm-hmm. you see that these other planets, these other moons, they're all around. Why would Earth be any different? Why would it be, you know, like a Tupperware container when everything else are like round balls up in the sky? Well, the Earth is not a luminary. The Earth is the foundation for the heavens. And we're told that in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, that it is the floor of what is the heavens that are spread above and across it, uh, and that the earth was created um, as a unit together in the first day. And we see that the sun and the moon weren't even created on until the fourth day. So looking at the Genesis timeline and the narrative for the creation week, on the first day, you have the earth and the heavens being created as a unit the firmament which is a solid structure being established and encompassing the circle of the earth on the second day and then on the third day you have the dry land being elevated above sea level and that when the dry land appears that god creates all of the land creatures to inhabit it and then on the fourth day the luminaries which include the sun the moon the stars Uh, and also Mercury, Mars, Venus, Saturn, and Jupiter, those are the luminaries. They were put into circle, into tabernacle, uh, above the the face of the earth. And that's why we see that in the time-lapse photography of the movement of the stars over the course of an evening, that the sun, the moon, and all the luminaries, they all move in circle around Polaris. And it's not that the luminaries are moving in circle around the sun. Uh, They all, again, even the sun, the moon, everything moves in circle around Polaris, and the earth is stationary. And it is, the again, the foundation for the luminaries, but it is not a luminary itself. So like yesterday, for instance, when, you know, SpaceX just put another, just put two people up in space and you watch the, the footage the whole way through, you can see the curvature of the earth right there, you know, on, on, you know, on YouTube or on TV and, you know, right there from their, from their live stream. Do you think supposedly it's then? Okay. that is doctored? Cause again, there is no curvature to the earth and anybody can go and confirm and test this for themselves. And so after doing a very simple test with a laser pointer and two mirrors, you have to uh, you have to throw out everything as far as what they are trying to show us of curvature because it does not exist. And yeah, it is doctored. They are all of the space programs, all of the so-called you know um, European Space Agency or NASA, all of them. They are all trying to. Um, perpetuate what is this illusion and even in the you know Apollo 11 when they supposedly went to the moon uh, if you watch the movie that bar by Bart Cybrell a funny thing happened on the way to the moon you see that in uh, Apollo 11 that the astronauts are trying to deceive the world into believing by using the window of the lunar module that the earth is a globe and that the pictures and the video uh, evidence uh, is totally uh, been fabricated and it's been hoaxed. And if you look at and watch this particular video that's been released, it concerns without a doubt that if the earth were round, why would they have to lie about it? Why would they have to hoax it? 
And so again, uh, if you examine even all of the space missions, they never went to the moon. It's not possible. They can't get beyond the Van Allen radiation belts. And they admit it even in this day and age. There's a whole project Orion where they're trying to develop the technology to get to Mars, but they admit that they cannot get beyond the Van Allen radiation belts, that the astronauts cannot survive um, to get past them and to get back. And so if they're not able to do it back even right now, how were they able to achieve it then? And so, you know, people can do their own homework. I recommend, I've written three books on the subject, The Flat Earth as Key to Decrypt the Book of Enoch, The Firmament Vaulted Dome of the Earth, and Paradise, Sides of the North, and the Mount of the Congregation. Gotcha. So basically everything that we see is doctored. So anything that right. uh, SpaceX launched yesterday, doctored, all the astronauts' testimonies, Air Force pilots' testimonies, you're saying that those are all manipulated and they're, it's not, they're not being truthful? Uh, well, when it comes to the shape of the Earth, they're not, or going to the moon, they're not. Yeah, there's some kind of, you know, there's some kind of launch and there's some kind of uh, whatever. But, you know, as far as even talking about uh, SpaceX in yesterday, um, you'll notice that they launched at 322. The capsule is called Dragon and that this uh, whatever they deployed, that it was supposed to be picked up by, you know, the, the space station. Well, if you look at uh, even the supposed rate of speed of the space station, it's supposed to be traveling at all these several thousand miles an hour. How are they going to, you know, capture something uh, with a net or, you know, even if it's not moving or how is something that's deployed going to catch up to the rate of their supposed rotation for them to safely uh, bring this particular package into the space station. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't make sense. And even looking at the way that the space station was developed, there's no compartmentalization like uh, in the instance of the building of the sub or a submarine that if you have a breach in one particular uh, hull gets flooded with water, you can lock up and separate all of the different aspects and portions of that submarine. But this is not the case for the space station. So if even one little part of the space station gets breached, even hit by a, you know, a debris or a particle the size of a marble, it would absolutely destroy it. And yet there's no emergency measures for them to be able to seal off and to prevent, you know, the air or, you know, as far as their oxygen uh, dissipating. I mean, uh, it just doesn't make sense. So a lot of what has been pushed forth by NASA, in my opinion, is easily uh, debunked. What's what would be the reason to convince people the world is round instead of flat? What's what's the end goal? What's the objective? Why why would they even care uh, what uh, you know what shape it is? Why would they push this on us if it wasn't real? Well, the first thing has to do with the fifty six million dollars a day that they are budgeted, which is quite a huge amount of money, and their ability to use that money for whatever projects or black ops or whatever. Um, but with it's flat around, I mean, they'd still spend the money whether it was flat around, right? Yeah, and, and that's a good question. But again, I think that the theme of it, and even the uh, when you look at the establishment of NASA, 
going back, the occult establishment of NASA is that they have been worshiping these pagan gods and these pagan deities. And again, I think that the end game and the Bible warns us about this is that now with the ancient aliens, the history channel, they are pushing the theme that the extraterrestrials are our creators. And in the Sumerian mythology, it speaks about how they were able to set up colonies on the moon and Mars and uh, things of that nature. Well, when you understand that the luminaries that are above us, that the stars are not suns and they don't all have planetary systems around them, but that the sun is unique in its construct, as is the earth, the possibility of these beings being from galaxies and you know light years away and that they uh, were able to evolve um, intelligent life uh, in a manner that they were able to seed life here on the earth so many millions of years ago or whatever it is that they're going to claim that all that becomes nullified it's not possible in fact the luminaries are very even the sun and the moon they say that the sun is 93 million miles away and that you can fit 108 Earths across the, the center of its diameter. But yet the sun in the book of Enoch, the sun and the moon are said to be of same size and very small because they were put into the tabernacle of the firmament and their rotational cycles are below what is called the firmament. And so in according to the Genesis timeline, they are of very much smaller stature than even the circle of the earth or the firmament that was fitted to it. And so, um, again, even like with what just happened with the um, 2017 where we had the solar eclipse, and yet, you know, we're told that the moon is uh, 240,000 miles away and that it's so many many times bigger and larger than uh, the earth. And yet the shadow of what was cast from the moon upon the face of the earth was only 70 miles across. And if you take a flashlight and you shine it, uh, its light onto an object, its, its shadow is usually much larger than even the size of the object. And so how is it that the moon, its shadow could only be 70 miles across and that you can see it as a little dot on the face of the earth and that this dot is where total eclipse happened? Uh, all of that just, again, does not make any sense. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm one of the guys that still thinks the earth is round. <laughs> it's just so... Well, most people do. Yeah. yeah, so we're on the same page there. Just, uh, you know, Netflix, what did you think about Netflix where they did that uh, Behind the Curve documentary? I don't know if you saw that or not. Where I did. Yeah, what did you think about that? I think it was, um, uh, it was purposely doctored in order to skew um, and to make, you know, people that understand biblical cosmology like I do. Uh, to be like tinfoil hat wearing people and to make the premise of this laughable so that people won't even examine it or look into it with serious consideration. And I think that what they did was uh, a hit piece uh, against the movement. Uh, but again, it's very easy to determine that curvature is non-existent. And I challenge anybody out there 
to go and do a simple test for yourself. And another thing that you'll, uh, when you really examine this particular topic with open mind, is that you will find that uh, lighthouses, cityscapes, uh, statues, monuments like the Statue of Liberty, that they can be seen at 60 miles distance. Uh, and even the island of Oahu, its cityscape can be seen from Kauai at 100 miles distance. Well, according to the formula for determining the, um, the curvature of the earth, this should not be possible. But because at 30 miles distant, there should be over a half a mile of curvature and that half a mile of curvature should hide the possibility of seeing even the Chicago skyline or the Statue of uh, Liberty or, you know, lighthouses or towers. Uh, they should be completely hidden below the curvature of the earth. And yet you can see even beyond, you know, 60 miles distance, like I said, lighthouses, the Statue of Liberty, the New York skyline, the Chicago skyline. Um, there's structures from all over the world, which verify, again, the non-existent nature of curvature. Interesting. So I guess uh, back on the, uh, the Catholic Church, we'll, we'll go, back, go back there a little ways. Um, you know, you, were, you talked about, um, you know, the fish god, and then everybody talks about, you know, the Pope. You know, the Pope is in charge of, of Catholicism, basically. But then there's this other uh, narrative, this other belief that uh, there's something called a Black Pope. Have you heard of this? Are you familiar with it? Yes. Yes, I am. And um, yeah, there's, it's the same thing with, you know, all of the governments of the world, uh, even like here in America that, you know, we have Donald Trump that is president, and yet he is not the person that is in power. Uh, he's just a puppet on a string. And so who he's is, who is in charge then? Uh, well, the Bilderberger elite and the New World Order elites that come together to decide even who's going to be brought forth in contention of a particular election. Uh, it has always been that way. Uh, the Royal Institute for uh, the Affairs of Nations, uh, which is the, and we have here in America, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission. We have these aspects of secret government that having existed for a very long time, they are the ones that are truly ruling from behind the scenes. Even like the Federal Reserve, you know, they're the ones that print the money and loan it to our governments at interest. All of the income taxes of people living here in America go down to pay to just pay the interest on this debt. And so, you know, they're the ones that really rule from behind the scenes. And they show you even on the dollar bill, you have, you know, the um, the Illuminati pyramid. And then you have the eye at the top of the Illuminati pyramid, which is separate and detached from that pyramid. That represents Lucifer uh, and Satan, the powers, the principalities, the rulers of darkness, wickedness in high places. They are the ones that are truly ruling over the affairs of humanity. Gotcha. And so what is, what's the Black Pope's purpose in all this? What, who is it? What, is, what do they do? The Black Pope is simply a figure that answers directly to Satan and Legion, and they push forth the agenda of the New World Order, and, and that the the you know the the real Pope, the White Pope, uh, he's just a figurehead, 
in similarity to all the presidents that are um, supposedly elected in all the different parts of the world. They're just, uh, it's like, um, you know, the Kentucky Derby. Uh, everybody has all these different horses. They're all running a race. You can all bet on them to win, but it's the owners that are behind the scene that fund and control and own uh, each one of these horses. They're the true power behind these uh, dog, you know, it's a dog and pony show, basically. Wow, gotcha. So, you know, back to, um, you know, I guess the the creation, right? So over a seven day period, well, I guess six days, how long do you think each one of those days are in our traditional, you know, scale of time? You know, how many hours do you think a day was? Was it 24? Do you think it was, you know, when you try to piece this all together and figure out how much time has lapsed from day one to day six to day seven to, to where we're at, what do you think the time scale is? Well, I do believe that in the scriptures, uh, it tells us in Psalms 90 that a day is as a thousand years unto the Lord. And that going back to what is the recreation of the earth and the heavens after Genesis 1-3, that we had literally uh, in the first creation week, these 24-hour periods, but that they equate to in what is called the second world age, a thousand years. And that the second world age is a period of 1,000 years, which equals 120 jubilees of 50 years each, and then 1,000 years for the millennial reign. And so, um, and so, yeah, I believe that the second world age is a duration and a period, uh, an epoch of 7,000 years. Gotcha. And then the actual war in heaven, you know, is that something that's still going on today? There's, you know, a lot of, a lot of questions around that, you know, how did it start? Um, how long has it been going for, or is it over? When's it come back? What do you think? Yeah, it is ongoing today because, um, you know, the legion, the devils and demons that were cast out of the heaven, they are here on the earth. They've been given temporary reign and they are waging war for the souls of humanity and that they are trying to influence us into um, committing sin, which will find us, like them, excluded from salvation, and that their whole purpose now is to cause humanity to sin to such degree that we are not included in salvation through Christ. And so, yeah, the war in heaven is happening in the hearts and minds and the spirits and souls of every human being alive in this world and um, that has incarnated into flesh form. And this will continue until the second advent. When Christ comes again, then he will take his judgment seat and he will separate the wheat from the tares. A lot of people think that, you know, this is kind of like the end of days going on right now. What, what, what's your thought on that? Uh, it is my opinion that we are the last generation and that what is scripturally referenced as the fig tree, the blooming of the fig tree, that, you know, when the apostles asked Christ, what would be the signs of the end and the return uh, and of your second advent? He told them to know ye the parable of the fig tree. He told them, you know, be, be wary that you are not deceived, that there's going to be rumors and wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and diverse places, the waves and the seas roaring, and that we will be, uh, you know, uh, persecuted for his namesake, all these things. But then he said, 
know ye the parable of the fig tree. And the fig tree is, in my opinion, connected to the recreation of Israel, uh, the, which happened in 1948. And that this was the sign for our generation that those that would be alive would be those that would be here when the, all the prophecies are fulfilled. And that this is affirmed uh, in numerous manners, in numerous prophecies, in numerous ways. And so, yes, I do believe we are the last generation. In Psalms 90, verse 10, it describes a generation as being 70 uh, or 80 years by strength. And the 70th anniversary of the creation of Israel happened in 2017 when Trump moved um, our embassy to Jerusalem and recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And so I believe that, you know, we have less than 10 years before something of, um, you know, what could be the end of days will creep upon us. Well, talking about the uh, the second coming of Christ, um, our buddy Rice Crypto here, he asks you to uh, to summarize, you know, who is Jesus from your research and all the miracles and did he actually die on the cross? That's what uh, Rice Crypto wants to know. Yeah, Yahushua is part of what was the pre-existent Godhead and that the Godhead is the Holy Trinity, the Father the mother, the feminine aspect of the Godhead, which is the Holy Spirit, and then the only begotten Son, which is Christ, and that he took on flesh embodiment, that when the devil tempted Adam and Eve and they fell, that he gave a prophecy to Adam that he would enter into flesh, be born of his seed, and dying on the cross, he would descend down into Sheol and free them from the bondage of Abraham's bosom. And this, in fact, is exactly what he did. And that being resurrected, he restored them to life, took them back to paradise. They were given over to the archangel Michael, baptized in the Arturusian lake, and then allowed to enter. Uh, they were restored to their first estate, allowed to enter New Jerusalem, paradise, the city of God. And that he made promise then that he would return again. He said, I go forth now to prepare uh, mansions in, in my father's house or many mansions and that he will come again for us. And so there is a time at the end of days where he will return and then the harvest, the elect will be numbered uh, with the children of promise and the children of perdition, the seed of the serpent will be numbered with the wicked and the whole theme of the wise and foolish virgins to have your oil in your lamp and to have your wicks trimmed and prepared for the coming of the bridegroom. This whole theme is part of uh, that separation and that harvest at the end of days. So Christ is the lamb of God uh, that John said. And, you know, when he baptized him, um, behold, uh, he who takes away the sins of the world. Because being the son of God, he had the authority to forgive our sins. And also that salvation is through him. Gotcha. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, now, where do you think he was at um, in the missing periods of the Bible? Uh, a lot of people say that um, he went to India. Some people say he went um, you know, to the Orient. Uh, some people even say that he actually died in India. 
after being resurrected. Is have you heard any of this, heard any of this stuff? Uh, he didn't die, uh, but yes, I, I have heard, and there is possibility of his having made a journey to India. There is a tradition of you know stories that he did uh, come there and left a legacy uh, of you know divine occurrence there as well, just as he left miracle. Um, of his presence all throughout the world. Even the Native Americans have a tradition of what they call the pale healer and stories of Yahushua having come to them and having traveled not only all through North America and meeting all the tribes, but also going to South America. Uh, there's a book called He Walked Amongst the Americas, which describe and share all of these ancient stories. And so and there's also speculation that his father, Joseph of Arimathea, who had a fleet of boats, that he could have possibly traveled even to what is the UK uh, in that particular area of the world. But again, we don't know for sure because the legacy of the stories of his life are excluded from the canon, which again is the reason why I think people should study the uh, Yahushua Christ, Infancy Gospels, uh, the lost years, uh, and, and, you know, the early childhood uh, to gain insight into possibly what happened and where he was during the legacy of that time. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of stuff to uh, to catch up on that's not in the actual canon. Uh, another, another common uh, question I get, you know, the people were asking is, where do you think the Garden of Eden actually is or was? Well, the original paradise is in heaven, and it's where New Jerusalem is, and this is above the vaulted dome of the earth. Uh, it's called the city of God, and this is where Adam and Eve were taken, as well as all of their descendants uh, once Christ resurrected. Uh, in the story of the Gospel of Nicodemus, we have that Christ even told the thief that died on the cross with him, this day you will be with me in paradise. And he was given a pass to go above, you know, the vaulted dome of the earth again. And he waited outside of the city gates for Adam and his descendants to arrive. And that when the, he did, it, the thief told them the story of how he had seen all of the signs, the miracles in the heavens and the earth. And that believing that Yeshua was truly the son of God, he asked him to forgive him and to remember him when he came into his kingdom. And so Yeshua then uh, promised him that he would be forgiven and that he would be in paradise with them, which is exactly what happened. And then when they entered into paradise, which is again in the third heaven, even Paul mentions this in second Corinthians, uh, that above the vaulted dome of the earth, Enoch and Elijah were already there in paradise because they had not yet succumbed to death. And Enoch and Elijah told Adam and his descendants that they had been preserved and that they were going to be the witnesses of Revelation 11, that they would go forth at that time to convict the Antichrist, that he was the false Messiah, and that the Antichrist would kill them in the streets of Jerusalem. And so, you know, these are prophecies that are found in many ancient manuscripts but yes the 
New Jerusalem, it describes in chapter 20 and 21 in Revelation, that it will descend out of the heavens at the end of days when Christ comes again, and that it will be here upon the earth that he reigns with those that are uh, God willing, numbered amongst the elect, and that the thousand years of the millennial reign will take place here when the city of God again descends out of the heavens, and those that are worthy then enter in with him. Wow. So is this kind of like a, I guess you call it like a different dimension or something like that? Like you have Jacob's ladder where he saw people going in and out. Would this third heaven be considered, you know, like an alternate universe or dimension, something like that? Yes, it would be because flesh is not allowed there. And so, you know, when the prophets and um, were allowed to go there and to visit and to were given a vision of paradise, even like I mentioned, Paul in Second Corinthians, he describes having been taken, whether in body or out of body, he doesn't know. But he was given a vision of paradise, and he saw it above the third heaven. And you cannot go there with your flesh. You can only go there in spirit, and that's after death. And those that are part of uh, the righteous they go to paradise and join the other prophets, the patriarchs and the children of Adam that are already there. Um, but those that are numbered with the, uh, the children of perdition, they go to hell or what's called Sheol. And that is in the interior of the earth. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what do you think happens when we die? You know, like right now. So for instance, you know, when somebody dies, do they just go to this, you know, other dimension, you know, heaven, or do they go to hell or shell, you know, right now? Or is there kind of a waiting period before that happens? No, there is no waiting period. Uh, the determination of that occurs very quickly. And I would recommend that people read a text called The Vision of Paul. And in, from chapters 20, I mean, chapters 12 through chapter 16, this exact question is answered. And Paul is given a vision of what happens to a righteous man and also one that is wicked after the point of death. And so with the story of the righteous man, when he died, the both, both sets of angels, the good angels as well as the angels of hell, they come forth to see if there is anything of their nature within the man. And if that man does not have a wicked nature or a, um, you know, is inclined to evil, then the angel, his guardian angel comes forth to be his protector. There is a jury trial and then the uh, guardian angel and also the Holy Spirit, they give an account of the actions and the life of that particular angel, uh, that particular person and whether he is worthy of going on to paradise or if he was wicked, then the angels of Sheol, they, they, there is no protector for him, and they are able to drag him down to hell. And wow. so, the, you know, again, the account of both of those narratives can be found in the vision of Paul, chapters 12 through 16. So I got a bunch of questions now since I heard that. All right. So, you know, in Christianity, we believe that once we you know, accept Jesus into our lives and make him our Lord and Savior, we're we're fine, right? We're, we're supposed to go to heaven. So now is it you're saying that we need, we have a guardian angel that's with us all the time. And you're saying that 
we have, um, you know, the Holy Spirit, and both of those will testify on our behalf as to whether we're, I guess, um, quality enough to to get into heaven. Did I understand that right? Yes, the weights of oh. sins are measured, and yeah. Whereas, um, you know, the mainstream churches, the majority church, teach that all you have to do is accept Christ as Savior, and that you get a free pass. Um, and the scriptures actually it says that you have to accept Christ as Savior Messiah, and you have to follow the commandments, which means you have to go forth and sin no more. You have to truly be born again to where you are a disciple of Christ, not one who says, uh, you know, in word and name, but not in action. And that's why we see in Matthew chapter 6, where all these people said, oh, God, you know, Christ, I did all these things in your name. We fed the naked and uh, you know, took care of the hungry and the poor and the orphan and the widow. And he says, away from me, you workers of iniquity, I know you not. Wow. And so a lot of people are fooling themselves, in my opinion. Well, what, what type of form do you think we'll have, you know, once we leave Earth? You know, what do you think our, our body composition is going to be like? And will we still know our family and friends? And how will Yes, that- yes, there is memory for the righteous. And it describes in the primary Adamic literature how even before Adam and Eve fell, they had what is referenced as a bright nature and that they were like the angels in heaven, that they were immortal. They did not have genitalia. They did not have um, anything that was of human characteristic. It wasn't until they touched the tree and the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, in the day that you touch it, thereof you shall die. And so when they touched it, when they ate this fruit, that's when their genitals appeared and they took on, they lost their bright nature. They took on mortal aspect. And that's also the moment that the serpent pounced upon Eve, impregnated her with Cain. And then Adam eating the fruit also repeated the act and the behavior uh, and impregnated her with Abel. And that's why we see in the Genesis 3.15, the prophecy God speaking to the serpent said, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and her seed. Speaking to Eve, he said, now that you've done this, you're going to have to basically bear children in sorrow. And to Adam, you're going to have to work the ground to bring forth um, um, substance to feed your children. And then they were cast out of paradise and all of those things came true. So when they were cast out of paradise, where did they land? They landed here on the earth because they were then in a mortal form and in a fallen nature. And that's when the cherubim were put into place to protect the tree of life. Because it's at the end of days that those that are worthy will receive fruit from the tree of life. And they will be turned into glorious embodiment and allowed to enter into New Jerusalem, which, as I said, is above the vaulted dome of the earth in the third heaven. Gotcha. And then you said that we all have a guardian angel. What, what do you think uh, this entity is, is doing for us on a, on a daily you know, basis? Uh, the guardian angel is that angel that, you know, as a, you see in the Looney Tunes, you got the good angel on the right shoulder, the bad angel on the left, and they're trying to warn us not to commit sin. Uh, it is the conscience within us, as well as the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is described as the breath of man. Uh, and it is that portion within us that animates our bodies and gives it, you know, consciousness. 
and so these celestial beings are with us all throughout our lives and that are giving us and um, and trying to lead us into performing uh, actions which are good and to not follow sin and to not fall away. And so you'll see that when you read the stories, it describes how, you know, those that are righteous, that the angels and the guardian angels, they revel in the actions and the behaviors of such a soul. Uh, and those that are uh, evil and wicked, they didn't even want to be with them throughout their lifetime because it actually hurts the angels to see people commit sin or to cause harm to others and they don't like it. And so, um, you know, that's the account. And every evening uh, at twilight, it says that the angels go forth to speak to and to bring an account of what we have done over the course of that day. And these things are written into the books of life. Wow. Well, I guess that explains, do they actually protect us when you say, you know, guardian angels, do they actually protect us from different things aside from just whispering in our ear to do the right they thing? They do. Yeah. Absolutely. That explains why I'm still here a whole bunch of times then, I guess. I think so. Me too, <laughs> brother. <laughs> I must have a, a guardian angel on um, overdrive, man. He's putting in a lot of overtime for sure. Yes, <laughs> we all do. Yeah. So what's, you know, what, you know, through all your research and through all the, you know, the, the years you spent as a scholar and, and as a scribe, what, what do you believe that the, the key to life really is? I think that remembrance is the most important thing that studying the gospels and coming to understanding on the scriptures and the reasons of why we need to be redeemed because we are a fallen race and we are in a fallen form in a fallen world that christ promised to come to save us in order to rectify the fall and to restore us to our first estate and so the whole theme of the war in heaven and the enmity between the seed lines that would play out and the coming of christ in first and second advent and the importance of that uh, is all related to a remembrance of who we are, why we are here, and what all this is really all about. Gotcha. What's uh, what's some of your thoughts on astral projection? You know, you hear a lot of that's becoming more and more prevalent in uh, not so much the media, but you know, on YouTube and, and things like that, alternative media. Uh, what's what's some of your thoughts on that? I believe that astral projection is similarly connected to lucid dreaming, and that um, it's natural as long as you are not involved with devils and demons that every night when we go to sleep in our bodies fall asleep and our spirits leave to go on into dreaming that this is a natural process and that often god uses our entrance into such space to bring forth message to warn us or to give us a dream that could be important on things that might happen uh, that often, you know, imagery could be prophetic or that we can receive vision like, you know, Daniel um, receiving the vision of Nebuchadnezzar and even Joseph receiving the vision of Pharaoh and interpreting those visions that, you know, it not only saved their lives, but in the case of Joseph saved the lives of probably millions of people because he was appointed uh, then to be the administrator of 
Egypt and that he was able to feed because he knew that there was going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of lean. And using that knowledge, he prepared for those events and was able to save even that of his family. And so uh, with regard to dreaming, we don't place any emphasis or any importance upon it, but many cultures did. And there are many um, peoples worldwide that do, and they try to teach their children that dreams are important. And that when you live a life like that, it's my opinion that many who do and are able to recall and to retain what they dream, that many of them are led spiritually by the Spirit of God. In the same manner that if one is seeking out a cult or magical preference and that is involved in demonic, uh, the conjuring of devils and demons, that surely you're going to increase in what might be called magical power and the relationship of these devils and demons. And so the choice is upon you know our free will and our heart, our intent, and our inclination to do good or evil. But as far as um, the astral spaces and dreaming, lucid dreaming, and that particular space, it has always been used uh, as uh, what is uh, a, you know that barrier between dreaming, the waking world and the dreamtime world, that when you step across it, you are able to interact with you know, spiritual forces and to receive often a vision or knowledge of, you know, prophecy or, uh, or things that would happen in the future or so, even in the past. So what do you think about uh, people that are on purpose trying to reach that state of mind or, or that different dimension? What do you think that people that, you know, are purposely, you know, through meditation or through trying to, you know, astral project outside of just sleeping. Is that um, sinful? I mean, is that uh, something that's okay? What's, what's your thoughts on trying to get there uh, throughout, um, you know, I guess without dreaming, what's just getting there on purpose? I think what is important about their intent is where they are in their spiritual walk and awareness and knowledge of who the true Godhead is. Uh, because just like playing with a deck of tarot or playing with a Ouija board. Uh, if you don't know who the true God is and you don't have a relationship with the true most high, well, then you're going to be interacting with devils and demons and that is not going to be a good experience. And so it, in my opinion, depends a lot upon a person's intent and their uh, true religious understanding and whether they are in true relationship with the Most High, because these things are tools. But again, if you don't know what you're doing, uh, and if you're trying to invoke an experience with something you don't really understand what you're getting involved in, then the doorways that you are opening, you don't know what kind of entities, what kind of spirits are going to come through, nor what kind of uh, entities you're going to interact with. And so it's, um, you know, it's like playing Russian roulette. Yeah, sounds pretty sketchy. I think I'll stick to just, uh, you know, sleeping, right? Right. Uh, 
All right. So we uh, in the beginning, we started talking a little bit uh, before we went live about uh, crypto and blockchain. What's what's some of your thoughts on crypto blockchain? Um, do you think that uh, it's uh, good, bad? Just maybe some of your thoughts just in general and in, in your research. I think crypto is just like, you know, again, the Ouija board of the Tarot is just a a tool and that it can be used for good or evil. Uh, decentralized, um, certainly that, you know, I think that the premise of why Bitcoin was established and that it cannot be manipulated by the elite or that fiat money just be created out of nothingness. Uh, I think that is a good thing and that it can truly preserve a real store of value that is outside of the realm of the manipulation of those that are holding the wealth and the power in the world. And um, that it can be beneficial for even you know, nations and peoples to establish something that, you know, again, is outside of the manipulation and the hold of the elites, even in their countries and in their world. Um, but, you know, there are other attempts to create decentralized cryptos. And if it's like, you know, the printing of money and they can just create crypto, it would be the same thing, you know, as, as what we are dealing with with regard to central banks. And so it's all just a matter of the kind of crypto um, and the way that is used and what it really represents that determines whether it could be good or evil. But I do think that as far as the end of days and what we see as AI technology and the uh, coming of the Antichrist, the reign of the Antichrist, that certainly he will use such knowledge and such technology to perhaps even control buying and selling. And so um, in that case, you know, it could be a bad thing, you know, even like uh, that movie, The Net, where they were able to um, just totally disappear Sandra Bullock's digital identity, you know, and then, uh, then not even being able to interact or live within a society where you're dependent upon uh, having a digital imprint, you know, uh, it could be challenging. Do you, do you own any crypto yourself? Have you ever uh, interacted with it? Oh, it's awesome. I do. Um, and I am, I, I'm only involved in Bitcoin. Uh, there's maybe a few other things like that, you know, you get rewards from Coinbase for sure. uh, doing these particular examinations of other crypto. And I have some of that, but my focus and my, and I do believe that one should diversify uh, into all things and that one should have some of everything. And so, yeah, I think that people, and I think that, you know, um, crypto has the potential for uh, if something really does happen and the fiscal system as we know it, collapses, um, that there could be a rush to um, cryptocurrencies. And I think that Bitcoin is the only one that I truly trust um, as far as a lot of that. And, and, and so, yeah, as far as, you know, even the platforms for trading it, uh, even a few years back, people didn't know how to gain access to it or how to invest in it. And that we are still at the stages where that is not easy and that most people are not yet involved in this particular 
arena of investing. And so I think that it has a great potential once it is easier access and easier uh, as far as the, you know, um, people that have a lot of money that want to use brokers to trade it and to get in, involved in it, that once those kind of platforms are established, that Bitcoin will benefit from it. Yeah. Yeah. Bitcoin is definitely the, uh, the OG of crypto. And it is still difficult a little bit to understand crypto and blockchain, but it is getting better. And that's one of the missions of, of Monarch, I'm the co-founder and builder of it. So, um, but uh, right. yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, it's got a ways to go for sure. But um, hopefully it uh, be a great utility and, and, uh, and freedom for people, you know, out there everywhere in the world. Uh, so, and at the end of the show, peeps, uh, for people that are still hanging out with us, I'm also going to announce all the winners for the week because every week I give away, you know, free crypto, uh, free monitor. Awesome. Good for you. And then um, also on Twitter, uh, we do some, uh, just some different contests and things like that. And I give away uh, some Bitcoin cash. So you'll have to take a look at Bitcoin cash one of these days too. <laughs> so, yeah. But uh, yeah, I'll do that here in a little bit. But before we do that, why don't you tell everybody, um, you know, what, what everybody should know? You know, like uh, if you had to sum up, you know, your, your life experience and, and what you think people need to know in this world, what would it be? And then where can people go to learn more about you? I think the most important thing uh, is to study prophecy because in doing so, you will learn that there are actual manuscripts out there which are divinely inspired by our true creator and that the messages and the words and the prophetic insights that are contained within them. They tell again, the story of the fall of humanity and why it was necessary for the son of God to enter into mortal form in order to redeem us and to rectify the fall. And so that story is connected to the remembrance of who we are, why we are, and even what all of this is truly about. And that understanding the, you know, some of these skeleton keys of the work that I do, uh, it will help you to better understand the bigger picture of what we are contending with, with reality, uh, the esoteric nature and the conspiratorial nature of this world, even why all the bloodline elites are, you know, of all the same family, and how um, now, especially that the fig tree has bloomed, that we are in the last generation and that these are the end days and that the book of Enoch, as it was written for that distant and remote generation, that everything is playing out and we will see the fulfillment of all things. And so it's important that people understand these things in order to come to know who the true Savior Messiah is and of what is important with regard to the message of the cross in that he being the Passover lamb, that he died in order to present a forgiveness of sins for all of humanity. And that truly, if you go forth, be born again through him, and that you go forth and sin no more and are a true disciple of Christ and follow the commandments, that you will, God willing, at the end of days when he comes again and the harvest ensues, that you will find uh, the rewards of eternal life and of being able to enter into paradise for that millennial reign uh, with him. And so, and that's the most important thing because everything else is meaningless. 
it's eternity and salvation, which is the only thing that is even real, that everything else is an illusion, and that the focus of this life, the American dream, wealth, money, getting a bunch of things, substance, all that, is all just an illusion, that we're caught up in a matrix uh, of deceit and deception that is difficult to get and make discernment upon. But that if you, again, understand the aspects of the work that I do and the others, there's many others now that are um, doing similar work and helping people wake up to what's really going on, that you'll understand things in a way that is not being explained in Sunday schools or seminaries or that is not really even understood by most mainstream pastors, preachers, and ministers. And so uh, it's important, again, to do so because uh, salvation is through Christ and, um, you know, grace is awaiting uh, all those that truly do come to understand and truly do believe. It's awesome, brother. And they can find you over at uh, sacredwordpublishing.com. It has links to, uh, looks like all your social media, your radio shows, um, your books. Actually, I don't see social media here. Is it... uh, on your website? Um, well, just the, the Facebook, uh, Zen Garcia, all of my shows and my schedule. Um, but yeah, sacredwordpublishing.com is where you will find links to all of my books and even a schedule of, you know, my calendar of the radio shows and um, all of the weekly shows that I do, as well as all the numerous shows and platforms that we do with others. Uh, all that can be found at sacredwordpublishing.com or um, just Facebook, Zen Garcia. But we do have through our YouTube, Endeavor Freedom, and Zen Garcia, uh, all of our shows are uploaded and live streamed. Um, and um, I do uh, a broadcast every Wednesday on Revolution Radio, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, and on Thursday night on Truth Frequency Radio, 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern. And so all that should also be available at sacredwordpublishing.com. Awesome, man. I sure appreciate you coming on. I could literally talk to you for hours. I could just keep coming up with questions, you know, just, yeah, you're a wealth of wealth of information. So it's, uh, it's been an honor and a pleasure having you on. I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, God bless you, man. I had a good time and I thank you for the questions and the opportunity. I hope that your audience was blessed by some of what we talked about. Yeah, I hope so too. So I got to give away some crypto now. So you All can right. around Be if you blessed. want. Yeah. Thank you everybody for joining us for this video and this broadcast. We appreciate all of you and thank you for your patronage. Please do like and subscribe and share with your friends. God bless all of you and your seeking.